Okay. So we have a very interesting topic ahead of us today, and it's a very important one to me because I'm sure you've noticed there is a wealth of information available to us on all things spirituality, especially on the internet. So many ideas are available, and yet very few directions as to how to turn those ideas into lived realities. So often we end up accumulating vast stores of intellectual knowledge, and we can perhaps even write books on spirituality, and we can talk our friends' ears off on spirituality. But when it comes to actually walking the talk, when it comes to actually living the life, we find precious little instruction as to what to do and how to do it. So today's lecture is all about practice. With the grace of Divine Mother, it might be possible to um, talk a little bit about what spiritual practice really is, how to do it, how can you gauge progress, etc., etc. Now, eventually, sooner or later, those of us who have dived deep into spirituality in an intellectual sense will ultimately have to realize um, the limitations of the intellect and the limitations of intellectual study. So you can attend as many lectures as you want to, um, watch all the videos on the internet, and you can read serious books, you know, like Shankara's Aparokshana Bhuti. You can even memorize them verse by verse. Sri Harim Paramananda, Mupadeshtaram Ishwaram, and you can just, you know, spout the whole Aparokshana Bhuti, maybe Viveka Churamani. You could understand, you know, the subtle arguments presented in Panchadashi or Drigdrishya Viveka, Vidyaranya Swami. So you can read all these Vedantic texts. You can, you know, go very deep into the study of Advaita Vedanta. You could read all the tantras. Maybe you've read the Kula Arnava or the Mahanirvana Tantra. Maybe you can, you know, give a commentary or a bhashya, a vivritti on the Vigyana Bhairava Tantra, whatsoever. You have it. You have it. You can, you can do all these things. However, eventually we all have to realize that intellectual knowledge is not lived wisdom. So however much we might know about spirituality, it doesn't matter one jot because when it actually comes to interacting and interfacing with the world, it's the same addictions, the same aversions. We find ourselves buffeted by the same fears and the same cycles of suffering and the same addiction. So for all of our learning, though it's very thrilling and has been very ennobling and inspiring at times, yet we have to come face to face with this startling realization that it's not enough. It's not enough to simply hear about this stuff. It's not enough to simply contemplate it. It's not enough to simply pick it, pick it up every now and then and think about it here and there. It's not enough to simply be inspired by it. That's wonderful. It's certainly a wonderful thing, but something more is required. After that initial inspiration, after that thrilling discovery of the truth, as it is presented in a lecture or in a book or in a YouTube video, after that comes the very real concern of practice. How do I make it my own? How do I integrate? How do I assimilate? So in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna, you'll see numerous occasions where people are discussing like the highest flights of Vedantic philosophy. So they're discussing these very deep and subtle philosophical ideas. And Sri Ramakrishna, you know, like a child would listen in and he'd be pleased and he would say something like, okay, these are all very good things to talk about. These are all very good ideas. But then he would almost never fail to say, you know, without missing a heartbeat, he would say, but now it must be assimilated. Now it must be digested. Now it must be integrated. So it's all well and good to study. It's all well and good to talk. That's indeed, um, you know, the beginning of the journey. But now it's time to assimilate, to digest, to integrate, to make these ideas our very own. And that's what I hope, mother willing, this lecture is going to be about. I want to talk about practice. Um, and the way I'm going to do it is a little different. I'm going to actually read from a book that's very sacred and special to me. And I'm just going to read through the first chapter of this book. And I think many of the core principles of spiritual practice, or what is sometimes called the interior life in the Christian mystical tradition, will become clear as a result of reading this chapter. So I'm going to do a bit of a commentary on the way of a pilgrim. Now, some of you might have read it. 
It's a wonderful book on Japa yoga, on the recitation of a mantra as spiritual practice. And the book follows the journey of this anonymous Russian pilgrim as he tries to learn this thing called unceasing prayer, um, constant interior prayer. He's trying to learn mystical life. He's trying to actually have direct firsthand, firsthand experience of divinity. So the book is about the journey of such a being. So I think it's of immense relevance to us who are also similar beings, spiritual aspirants on the journey of experiencing truth for ourselves firsthand. So what today's lecture will be is just a kind of read through of chapter one of The Way of a Pilgrim with some commentary. So my goal is to cross-reference what we find in this wonderful little book anonymously written from the 19th century. We're going to cross-reference the ideas presented in the first chapter of this book with similar ideas in the vast literary tradition of Indic spirituality. So we're going to compare statements in the book to various, you know, um, various ideas that we find in yoga, in Tantra, in Vedanta, etc. Yeah, so we're going to read the book out. Um, so actually, I'm going to stop in places. So I'm going to read a chapter, stop, and give a little exposition based on a particular principle, and then go on to the next chapter. So here's the idea. It's a long chapter. It's not too long, but there are many ideas in it. And I want to go one idea at a time. Okay, so I'm going to use the way of a pilgrim chapter as just a kind of framework to structure this lecture. Why should I structure the lecture when this anonymous Russian pilgrim has already done so for us? So all the main principles are presented in a kind of logical sequence um, from chapter, I mean, from, I, I almost said verse to verse, but from paragraph to paragraph. So used to the Sanskrit shastras, verse to verse, no, paragraph to paragraph. That's what we're going to do. That's the way this lecture is going to work, mother willing. However, before we start, three disclaimers. Disclaimer number one, we're going to talk about spiritual practice and spiritual practice is all about, as I've said earlier, making these ideas your very own. So most of you are already acquainted with some ideas here. You're already acquainted with, you know, the spiritual traditions. We've talked about them for years now together. And many of you are coming into this with a vast um, you know, supply of prior knowledge. So I'm not really going to get into any theoretical stuff, really. I'm not going to tell you about Atman or Brahman or Shiva Shakti or anything like that. We'll save that for another evening. I just want to talk about the practical aspects of spiritual life. That being said, though, we'll have a Q&A at the end of this lecture where we can talk theory all night because it is valuable to do so. However, the focus of this lecture is going to be about practice, about doing, not necessarily about being. Now, the second disclaimer I'm going to make, obviously, as we've learned, you are already, even now, at your essence nature, perfect. Not you, the body, not you, the mind, not you, the ego, but who you really are beyond all those three. So you, the spirit, and here, here we'd say consciousness, the witness, chidruposi sada sakshi, nira peksha sukamchara. As it says in the Ashtavakra Gita, you are of the form consciousness, distinct from the physical objects of the body and the world, distinct from even the mental objects of the mind and the ego. You stand apart from all of this and therein you are pristine and pure and free. So you don't need to practice to become this. Okay, you already are this. So it's not that you need to practice to grow or to fix some kind of imperfection in you. It's not that you need to add something unto you that is currently lacking. And it's not even that you need to get rid of something that is currently in excess. It's more the case that you practice simply as an expression of what you already are and as a way to make that truth, which even now is true, ever more present in each and every interaction of your life. So as I like to say, Shiva doesn't need practice. Brahman doesn't need practice. You do. You, the jiva, the body, mind, ego, personality complex, you need practice to kind of efface the ego, to purify the body, to purify the mind so that the truth that is already inherently true even now can shine forth with all the more brilliance and can truly uh, transform one's life. So Swami Vivekananda would say, you know, every soul is potentially divine. The, the goal is to make that innate divinity manifest in each and every moment of life. 
That's the goal. So that's the game of spiritual life. And ultimately, we can even phrase this as chitta shuddhi. The reason you're practicing spirituality is not to attain to truth. You already are truth. It's not to grow. It's not to heal. And by the way, if you want a justification for this statement, there is a lecture called You Do Not Need to Heal, a rather evocative title that I think has been rather controversial for some people. So maybe you can refer to that lecture as to why this claim is true. You do not need to heal. However, you do need to practice to kind of enter into the fullness of awareness that you already even now are. So the metaphor we can use here is that of a person who has has come to know that there is a vast treasure in his bank. So he's come to know that there's like billions of dollars stored away in the bank. However, um, unfortunately, unfortunately, he's lost the, um, I don't know, bank password or something like that. So he doesn't have um, the, the access to the bank. So although he has this vast treasure waiting for him in the bank, he can't access it. He can't withdraw it. He can't spend it. So that's kind of like the predicament of someone who's learned a lot of Vedanta, understands that they are Brahman, Atman, what have you, but is not yet able to live according to that. You see, so although it is ultimately true that you right now are perfect, there, there, there is a tremendous need for practice to make that perfection available to you. Okay, so perfection really, although is inherent in your nature, can be deepened through chitta shuddhi. So really what chitta shuddhi means is purification of the mind. So when we practice, the goal is to purify the body, to purify the mind. And then as a result, that truth, which is even now inherently true, will shine forth all the more clearly. I have to really stress that just so we don't fall into this trap of saying I'm imperfect, I'm fallen, I'm impure, and I need to do something to regain my initial state of purity. No, none of that. That's certainly not the position here in our tradition. Okay. Thirdly, the third disclaimer is this. There are an infinite number of ways to do this kind of chitta shuddhi, this kind of purification of the body, this purification of the mind. Why? Because the truth is infinite. Necessarily, an infinite truth can be expressed and reached in infinite number of ways. You know, so the one truth that you are will obviously be available through different means and methods. That means there's no one fixed way to realize the truth. Every way is valid and each is suited to people with different predispositions. So obviously, there's no way to say this is the one true path to the truth. No, every path is just as good as any other path, depending on your proclivities and predispositions. So the metaphor here is trying to get to the roof. Sri Ramakrishna often says there are many ways to get to the roof. You can climb up the roof using a ladder. You can get up there um, via a rope. I think you can pole vault using a bamboo pole. You can maybe be tossed up on the roof by a particularly strong person. Remember in Lord of the Rings? when Aragorn and Gimli are standing on the you know, causeway and then, and then Gimli's like, toss me. I want you to toss me. Don't tell the elf, you know? <laughs> okay, Lord of the Rings reference out of the way. Two more to go, Star Wars and rock and roll. We'll, we'll get there. So um, you could be tossed up on top of the roof. You could get up there by a rope, by a rope. You get up there through a pole. You can get up there through a step ladder or something, what have you. You know, um, similarly, if you open a GPS up and you kind of type into your Google Maps or whatever, um, a certain de destination, say truth or whatever, there'll be many directions to it. Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, like that. There'll all be these different routes and they all work. They all work. And you can take which, whichever route that you want, suiting your proclivity and predisposition. So obviously, in a lecture about practice, I'm not really able to tell you that this is the way, this is the practice, because all ways and all practices are as valid as all other ways and all other practices. Infinite truth can be expressed in infinite ways and reach through an infinite number of ways. Okay, so that much is, needs to be said. However, if we are to take up a spiritual practice, we better be sure that the practice that we're doing actually does work.
meaning it has to be tried and tested and it has to have produced its fruits in living spiritual masters. In other words, we don't want to do a practice that is dated or idiosyncratic to any one tradition because it might be the case that certain practices um, because of their idiosyncratic nature might've only really applied to certain people in a certain historical time period. So some practices might've been culturally viable at a certain time for a certain group of people and might no longer be culturally viable for the simple reason that cultural forces change that although ultimately humans have remained, generally speaking, the same over the decades and eons and millennia. I mean, if you read like the imitation of Christ, you know, this is a 15th century text, I believe. And in it, you'll see the same psychological problems, the same roadblocks, the same difficulties that the monks of that time were experiencing that we too now on our Discord check-in can see same level of difficulty. You know, so obviously, ultimately on the base level, nothing much has changed. However, a lot, of, a lot of things have changed in culture. And so some practices, though culturally viable at a certain time point, might not be right now. Okay, so we can't just suggest this is the practice. It, 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 if we say that, we yeah, search your feelings, Luke, you know it to be true. Thank you, Amanda. If I fail to get the Star Wars reference or the rock and roll reference in, someone has to help me. This is obviously the priority of the night. <laughs> anyway, so... Um, Obviously, if we're going to take up a practice, and it's obviously something we're going to be devoting a lot of time and energy to, we better be sure that it's culturally viable, that it's actually uh, efficacious, you know? So how do we do that? How do we figure out a practice that works? My proposition is this. If we can find a practice that not only produces living masters here and now within a tradition that's been tied, tried and tested over a vast period of time, um, if we can find such a practice, and better yet, if we can corroborate that across various different spiritual traditions in different religions, different mystical traditions, then we would have found a practice that I think we should take up. So my claim is, if there is such a practice that is tried and tested, that is able to produce living masters now, and is corroborated by different spiritual traditions from different parts of the world, chances are that's a good practice. Is that fair? I'm going to suggest here at the top of the lecture that there is such a thing, and it's called japa recitation. It's called the recitation of a mantra. It's called... Um, japa yoga. And of course, as you know, those of you in the Indic spiritual traditions know, japa yoga is the central practice in the bhakti tradition. It's also very central in the tantric tradition. In fact, tantra has sometimes been styled the mantra marga, the way of mantras, because here there's such a centrality on phonemes and sounds, especially bij mantras. So the recitation of mantras, the repetition of a sacred name of God, a certain mantra or sonic formula that is both spoken and whispered and ultimately mentally recited and ultimately even heard like that's the central feature in these practices in the Indic tradition. But in other spiritual traditions too, similar practices exist. So I'm going to make a case today that the most efficacious practice in spiritual life, although every path is valid, is probably japa for the reasons aforementioned. Because it's corroborated across various different spiritual traditions, because it's been time tested over various periods of Indian history and other world histories as well. And because today it's tangibly producing living masters who are living the very truths that they preach. Therefore, I would make the case that Japa is the spiritual practice of this age, uh, although many different practices work, right? So with all of those disclaimers in mind, let's now take up a text that is entirely about Japa yoga, insofar as this is a lecture about practice, and insofar as this is a lecture about Japa yoga specifically as the, the bread and butter of spiritual practice, I think it's wise that we consult this 19th century book called The Way of a Pilgrim, by an anonymous Russian author. Okay, so I'm going to read to you now from chapter one of a way, The Way of a Pilgrim. There's also a, a, a sequel, The Pilgrim Continues on His Way. You know, some of you might be familiar with um, Pilgrim's Progress. 
you know, there's a book also, a very famous Christian mystical book. Anyway, this is The Way of the Pilgrim. We're going to chapter one now. So this would be a good time, I think, if you wanted to take notes. Thus far, we've only had a bit of a preamble, a kind of a preface. Now we're getting into the lecture proper. There are going to be certain principles that will come across in this reading, and I'll flag them for you. So you, if you want to keep a list of these principles, it's good to do so now. So chapter one, by the grace of God, I am a Christian, by my deeds, a great sinner, and by my calling, a homeless wanderer of humblest origin, roaming from place to place. My, possess my possessions consist of a knapsack with dry crusts of bread on my back and in my bosom, the Holy Bible. That is all. <laughs> okay, so there are three things I want to unpack here. The first is the statement, by the grace of God, I am a Christian. Now, by Christian, I understand him to mean an aspirant after the truth, a seeker of truth, a person who is sincerely trying to walk the way of the higher life and live according to higher ideals. That's what it means to, in his language, I think, be a Christian. Not just to profess an intellectual assent to some belief structure or some religion, but to actually earnestly be on the quest for truth. So when he says, by the grace of God, I am a Christian, he's saying, by the grace of God, I have awakened to the higher life, to the higher ideals worth living for. By the grace of God, I am interested in metaphysics. By the grace of God, I am driven to attain truth beyond the senses, beyond the mind. So look carefully at this. By the grace of God alone, is it possible for a person to have this desire for truth? It only comes through Shaktipata. As you know, those of you who have been following along with the lectures on Tantra, a person awakens to spiritual life when Shiva himself awakens that person. No sooner, no later. A wizard only arrives. A wizard is never late. He arrives precisely when he means to. Oh my God, that's two Lord of the Rings references today. High five token. Now, it seems that um, by the grace of God alone, a person comes to spiritual life. Now, in Christianity, this is sometimes called conversion. It's a moment when a person realizes that there is more to life than what I've previously seen with my eyes and heard with my ears. There's more to life than accumulating wealth, than uh, attaining social position, than collecting pleasures. There's more to life than worldly things. Okay, That awakening, that realization, however faint or however strong, is in the tantric tradition called Shaktipata. Now, in the tantric tradition, the idea is that Shiva incarnates as a jiva to experience the world and first tastes a bunch of suffering, and then eventually it becomes interested in the higher way, in a higher life, in truer, more lasting happiness, and then he suddenly awakens. So this awakening process, this coming to religion, so to speak, this conversion has been called by Tantra Shaktipat, and it cannot be forced, it cannot be bought. You can't like go to a market and pay a certain amount of money and then gain a Shaktipata. You can't like cajole a guru into giving you Shaktipata. It's only Shiva who gives that Shaktipata when it's the right time. So that means it's through the grace of God alone that you're here, that you're interested in spiritual life. Not, it's not given to everybody to be interested in this. And that's okay. That's important to remember. I think a lot of people coming to spiritual life suddenly feel this weird evangelical need to make everyone else spiritual practitioners too. No, relax. Other people are still enjoying the special effects in the movie theater. They don't yet know it's a movie and they're not even interested in getting up, stretching their legs and walking outside the theater. Don't ruin the movie for them. They're still happily, happily involved in their life's drama, in their ego, me, mine. Don't condescend to them either. That's just what they're choosing to do at this particular time. However, for better or for worse, you lot have somehow intuited the existence of a higher truth and therefore are devoting your time and energy and are inclined to walk the path. So that inclination to walk the spiritual path is only via the grace of God. So by the grace of God, I am a Christian. Let's compare this to the opening verse of the Avaduta Gita. Now the Avaduta Gita is one of the most no-nonsense, 
non-dual text ever, right? It's like the, the song of the free, the song of the wandering mendicant who has realized or has awakened to the one reality of Brahman, who sees the world as a dream and who wanders in this dream world, absolutely unattached to anything. So that's the Avaduta Gita. And it opens with, and don't worry, I will um, put all the names of these books in the chat eventually. So maybe someone else can. So now the name of the, the text is the Avaduta Gita. And the opening line is this, Ishvara Anugraha Eva Pumsam Advaita Vasana. It is through the grace of God alone, Ishvara, God, Anugraha, grace, Eva only. So it's only through the grace of God that one awakens to the desire for non-duality. Advaita Basana, it's called. The desire for Advaita, for non-dual experience. Advaita, Pumsam Advaita Vasana. You know, it's only through grace that it comes. So I think that's a very important point, right? That you can only really come to spiritual life when it's time to come to spiritual life. Sometimes Sri Ramakrishna would be talking to people and he would realize they weren't really that interested in spiritual life. They weren't as ardent as he would have liked. However, you know, they would ask him, how do I become more ardent? How do I want to want God? And he would just smile and he would say, once a young boy said to his mother, please wake me up to answer the call of nature. And the mother laughed and said, my boy, when the time comes, I won't need to wake you up. You will know to get up and go to the bathroom. Similarly, you don't need to force this. It's something that comes. And when it comes, it must be recognized as grace. It is only through grace that we're here at all. Okay, that's the first point. It is only through grace alone that a person comes to genuine spiritual life in any capacity. Secondly, by the grace of God, I am a Christian. By my deeds, a great sinner. Now, Shravakrishna and Swami Vivekananda absolutely abhorred the use of the word sinner as a way to demean the innate divinity of a person. So there is a way in which to say the word sin and condescend and judge and make people feel like they're inherently dirty or impure. Now, that's not helpful. As Swamiji said, if you dwell upon weakness, you will become weak. So it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you think you are a sinner, you will just act in ways that justify that thought. So if you think you're impure, dirty, or debased, or somehow fallen, then you will just kind of act in a way that reifies that notion. So Swamiji, when he was giving lectures here in the United States, he, you know, he authoritatively said before in vast swaths of people, he would say, sin it's a sin to call ye sinners. Sinners, it is a sin to call ye sinners. I call ye children of immortal bliss. Arise, awake. You know. So this is, of course, Amritosi Putra, Amrita Putra. It's in the Upanishad, this idea that you are sinners. You are innately divine. Here and now, you are children of immortal bliss, heirs to divinity. So it's a sin to call you sinners. So obviously, Swamiji and Sri Ramakrishna is speaking out against the tendency in spiritual practitioners to feel weak, to feel guilty, and to simply wallow on, in the past. So that's not helpful. It's better to just get up and say, what's done is done. I won't dwell upon it anymore. And I'm going to make a firm resolve here and now to do better. I'm going to forgive myself every time I fall short without ever dragging down the ideal. So I can admit to myself that, um, you know, I'm not where I want to be, but that doesn't mean I have to feel bad about it, guilty about it, shameful about it. Now, sinner used to mean something different in the older Christian tradition. Sinner in Greek simply meant mistaken. So a person who is a sinner is not morally bankrupt, is not like supposed to feel guilty any more than you would feel guilty if you got a math equation wrong. So if you're doing your math homework in eighth grade, you just got something wrong. It's not because you are like morally bankrupt. It's just because of a simple intellectual error. Now, that's what the word sin was originally intended to convey, an intellectual error. It was a failure to understand what was real and what was unreal and discern between the two. So a person who sins is just a person who thinks they can get lasting satisfaction from the fleeting rewards of the world, like pleasure. So a person who lives from pleasure 
pleasure is sinning, not because it's wrong to want pleasure, just because it's stupid to. <laughs> you know, it's an intellectual error. It's intellectually problematic to think that you can gain lasting fulfillment from the pleasures of the world that are inherently fleeting and transitory. So in the Bhagavatam, we get this beautiful analogy of pouring ghee on a fire in the attempt to douse the fire. Obviously, ghee or oil will not douse the fire. It will only make the fire roar all the more fiercely. Similarly, if you think you can quench your thirst by satisfying various desires, that's as illogical as trying to douse a fire with oil. Every time you satisfy a sensual desire, every time you gratify the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, skin, every time you um, attain pleasure in this world, you only become thirstier for more, you know, until eventually, like Guns N' Roses, you develop an appetite for destruction. Ah, rock and roll reference, check. So um, it seems like sin here in this first paragraph is not meant to be a moral statement to make you feel guilty. It's rather an intellectual point. And that point is, if you're seeking lasting fulfillment from the world, from things like pleasure, wealth, and power, you are mistaken in your search. Your right to want bliss, your right to want peace, your right to want security, but you're wrong to look for them in the things that you're currently looking for them in. It's wrong to want security from having more money. It's wrong to want security from having more position in society. It's wrong to look for bliss and peace through pursuing pleasures and gratifying the senses. You should try all of those things up till the point when you realize they don't work, then you will say this thing. By my deeds, a great sinner. Essentially, if we were to translate this in the language of Indic spirituality, this statement would read like, um, by my cycles, by my patterns, by my samskaras, I am a samsarin. Because of my samskaras, my volitions, my impressions, I am caught in this wheel of birth and death. I am stuck in repetitive cycles of behavior that ultimately don't serve me. Okay, I think everybody on New Year's Eve will reflect upon all those patterns and cycles and behaviors that don't serve them. And then when they wake up, on the 1st of January, they resolve to do better. That's exactly what's going on here. When you recognize that you're bound, then only spiritual life begins. Do you see? Unless you recognize you're bound, there will be no imperative to do anything about it. And many people in the world don't feel bound. It is through the grace of God alone, for better or for worse, that you end up feeling claustrophobic in your prison house. You know, many people are very comfortable in their cell. They don't ever feel like getting up and escaping. But if you've ever felt like there's more to life than this, you know, then it's through the grace of God that you've been alerted to your bondage. Ramakrishna gives the parable of the fisherman's net. It goes into the water and it catches some fish. Now, some fish are so small as to not even be caught in the first place. These are the Ishvara Kotis, he says, the eternally free, the Nitya Siddhas. These beings are free even from birth. So they never get caught in worldliness. From a very young age, they have spiritual predispositions. They're practicing meditation from you know, from the earliest age possible, like Swami Vivekananda used to sit with his friends and play at meditation. You know, while the rest of us are playing tag and hide and seek, he's playing at yogi, meditating. <laughs> and he used to achieve very deep inner states. Now, that's a kind of example of a fish who's too small to be caught by the net. I mean, actually, in another place, someone remarked that Swamiji grew soup so big that the net couldn't even catch him. So then there are other fish who, through struggle, escape the net. So they strain and struggle and work out through them and then escape and then they jump and they're free and they happily swim away and then all the fishermen says look there goes a big one now these are the jivan mukta so those are beings who are caught but then through sadhana through spiritual practice through what we're about to discuss eventually become free and then everyone is happy and excited because you know a spiritual person walks with a certain fragrance that you know ennobles and elevates everyone around them so the fishermen say look there goes a big one now there's a third category of fish 
And these types of fish, they just burrow deeper into the mud of the net, you know, and they chew on the string and they feel quite satisfied. They say, oh, we're quite safe in the net. Now, the poor things don't understand that they're about to be dragged out of the ocean, killed and eaten and turned into sashimi. They don't understand that at all. You know, they're just happily chomping on their little bit of rope and they're burrowing into the mud and they're not doing anything about it. That's the case with most of us. We don't understand that old age sickness and death is coming for us all. You know, our loved ones are going to die. Do you understand this? You yourself are going to die. You will lose all the things that you value sooner or later, whether through death or through other means of dispossession. If you think this world is anything other than that, you are sorely mistaken. That's why the Buddha's journey, you know, Siddhartha Gautama became the Buddha. He was converted from a prince into the wandering monk that eventually became the Buddha through coming into contact with these harsh realities of life, old age, sickness, and death. So he's the kind of person who, you know, of course, he's an avatar, so he was born eternally free. But in his sadhana, in his life, you could say the story of the Buddha's life was the story of someone who realized the net, realized the predicament, and then worked to get get out of it. So he's saying, by grace of God, I am a Christian. And by my deeds, a great sinner. By my calling, a homeless wanderer of humblest origin. Now, of course, he's saying he's a sadhu. He's a wandering mendicant. You know, he's wandering from place to place, seeking religion, not attached to anything. But I think deeper than that, he's implying that, isn't that true of all of us? Aren't we all wanderers? We're not natives here. We came from who knows where and we have to return to who knows where. So in some sense, we're only passing through. We can't really keep anything here. You know, we can't take anything with us. And in that sense, we're all um, travelers, tourists. We're all refugees, as one Swami said. Here we are in this world and we should feel each of us, we should feel like wanderers. That's why the Christ would say, you know, that even the foxes have their holes, but the son of God has nowhere to lay his head. And that should be the way with us too. We should feel like even if we're enjoying the comfort of our home, it doesn't really belong to us. And at any time it could be taken away. So really, haven't we just been wandering from place to place anyway, from one home to another, from one country to another? So even if you aren't like actually a sadhu, you are actually a sadhu. Whether you know it or not, either you're like a sadhu externally or you're internally a sadhu and you haven't realized it yet. We're all of us wanderers in life. Okay, that's the second thing. Roaming from place to place. My possessions consist of a knapsack with dry crusts of bread on my back and in my bosom, the Holy Bible. That is all. Okay, so notice in this one paragraph alone, you are getting the two most important principles of spiritual life. These are the twin pillars upon which genuine spirituality is built. That's why I'm taking the time to really flesh this out. The first is viveka. Viveka means discerning between what is truly fulfilling, what is lastingly meaningful, and what is only temporarily fulfilling, what is only pleasurable, but is not lastingly valuable. So this viveka between the shreya, the good, and the preya, the merely pleasant is the beginning of genuine spiritual life. The degree to which you strengthen your viveka is the degree to which you will succeed on the path. A strong viveka will help you come to the mat when really all of your proclivities want to take you back out into the world, back to your investment portfolio, back to the bar. You know, it's your viveka, your understanding that these things, though pleasurable in the beginning, are ultimately deleterious. It's that viveka that will take you to that thing which is true. So this glimpse, this glimpse of something valuable and the discernment that it is not all of this, that's the beginning of spiritual life. Then the second thing is vairagya. Vairagya is distaste for the untrue distaste for those things that are only pleasurable and not ultimately good. So when he says, by the grace of God, I am a Christian, by my deeds, a great sinner, he's expressing two movements. One is a positive movement towards truth, and the other is a negative movement away from illusion. 
So notice spiritual life requires these two things, an active search for what is real and an active denial of what isn't. Is that clear? So Viveka, discern between the two, actively pursue the real and actively avoid the unreal. Without these two things, spiritual practice cannot happen. That you are here in any capacity is a sign that you have cultivated to some degree or other Viveka and Vairagya. And now it's only a matter of strengthening those things. So how do you strengthen those things? Well, live your life mindfully. I mean, do everything you wanted to do. Go and taste all the tastes you want to taste. Go and smell all the flowers you want to smell. Achieve things in this world. You know, if you want a certain amount of money, well, go out and get it. If you want some pleasure, go out and taste it. And then mindfully ask yourself the question, did I get what I thought I was going to get out of this? Am I actually fulfilled or am I just repeating cycles, expecting different results? Insanity, right? So sin doesn't mean you're morally bankrupt. It just means we're stupid. And that's okay. It's okay to be stupid when you're learning a difficult subject like mathematics. It's okay to make mistakes. It's part of the fun and it's part of learning. So when he says, I'm a great sinner, he means to say that, oh, you know, I made a few mistakes here and there. I've sought gold in baubles. I've sought the real in the unreal. So with that said, let's move on. So this whole book, by the way, starts with Viveka and Vairagya. Without Viveka and Vairagya, nothing will come after So having established that, let's move on to the next chapter. On the 24th Sunday after Pentecost, I came to church to attend the liturgy and entered just as the epistle was being read. The reading was from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, which says in part, pray constantly. These words made a deep impression on me. And I started thinking of how it could be possible for a man to pray without ceasing when the practical necessities of life demand so much attention. I checked my Bible and saw with my own eyes exactly what I had heard, that it is necessary to pray continuously. First Thessalonians 5.17, to pray in the spirit on every possible occasion. And then he gives some references. In every place to lift your hand reverently, it hands reverently in prayer. I reflected on these words. I reflected and reflected on these words but no understanding came to me. Okay, something very beautiful is being expressed in this second paragraph, and we all should take this message to heart. He doesn't simply accept what he's heard on face value. He doesn't go to a lecture, hear some guy say something, and then just accept it prima facie. No, he's not a fool. He goes and he hears something, he's moved by it, and then he consults the primary source and sees for himself whether or not that thing is true. So he heard in a lecture um, that one should pray constantly. It was inspiring to him to hear that. Then he went to the scriptures. He looked carefully at the Bible and he came up with three different references in three different places where similar instructions were given. It is necessary to pray continuously, to pray in the spirit on every possible occasion and in every place to lift your hands reverently in prayer. So essentially the Bible is teaching to pray all the time, to pray everywhere and to pray without stopping. Worship me, Arjuna, everywhere, all the time, you know? So that's the idea, that he hears something in the lecture and then he verifies it for himself. I think that's a beautiful thing to take away, especially in this age of people saying just whatever on the internet. I think it's valuable to keep them accountable, to ask them where they're getting this from, you know? What what are they drawing this from? Because either they don't know, and I think that might be worse, or they do know, and they're purposely choosing not to tell you so that you think the ideas are theirs. 
Okay, every good idea is probably in some scriptural text. The scriptures of all the major world traditions keep people honest. It keeps them accountable. It prevents them from claiming these ideas as their own and building cults of personality out of that. So when he heard this lecture, when he heard at the liturgy, this idea pray continuously, he reflected and reflected carefully as to what that might mean. And he consulted for himself the scriptures and discovered for himself similar things being corroborated by different parts of of the scripture. Now, remember, the Bible isn't just one book. Right? St. Paul has several letters that he addressed to several different, several different groups. Um, the Bible is many different books. It's a compilation of Levi's and Cohen's and Kings and all these different documents all compiled into one source. In some sense, Indic spiritual traditions are like that. Various different books across various different traditions. And so he's saying here that he has somehow found a corroborated thing corroborated across different biblical books is this idea, pray continuously, pray unceasingly, pray without um, interruption. And so this idea, constant prayer, fascinates him, absorbs him. It's an exciting thing, right? Especially if you've tasted the joy of prayer. If anybody here has felt that bhajan ananda, that bliss of worship, that ennobling, elevating sense of a good meditation or a beautiful lecture, if I may say so myself, or um, a wonderful hatha yoga session even, anything that cultivates a sense of sattva, spaciousness, purity, tranquility, anybody who's ever tasted that is also going to be interested in feeling that all throughout without interruption. So his quest is now to find uninterrupted bhajan ananda, that sweet ennobling bliss of prayer without any interruption, without any seizing. So he, he reflects and he reflects on these words, but no understanding came to me. What shall I do? I thought, continuing, where can I find a person who will explain this mystery to me? Do you see? He asks a question and now he's seeking out an instructor. Instructor, He's now on the quest for a guru. He recognizes that to understand the deeper mysteries of spiritual life, instruction is necessary. Um, imagine if you were getting a heart surgery and you asked the person giving you the surgery, so where did you learn to do surgery? And he said, oh, YouTube. I just watched a bunch of Swami Sarvapiranda lectures and now I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> but you know, like the idea is like people think that they can gain spirituality just by watching lectures on YouTube. It's true. It can happen in some cases. You know, you can be put on the path, certainly. But it's not enough. You can't simply like read books and watch lectures. You have to approach a guru. You have to personally know the guru and you have to personally work with the guru. It's not enough, by the way, to claim your guru is some long dead spiritual personality that you're interacting with through books. It's not enough for your guru to be some kind of celebrity who you don't see on a regular basis. No, for someone to be your guru, it must be someone that you're working with very closely, regularly, um, and who can actually instruct you in spiritual life because they themselves have attained to a higher level of spiritual life than you. If not full realization, at least some higher level of spirituality to be able to guide you. So in this sense, there are upa gurus, gurus on the way, gurus that can help you get to the next stage of your spiritual life. And those gurus come and go. Then there is the diksha guru or the sadguru, who we're going to talk a little bit more about later. Okay, so it's very important here to see that, <laughs> no, we'll talk about how to find a guru. It's, it's going to come. You're going to see how he discovers the guru and another spiritual principle will come. By the way, I hope you're keeping track of these, that Viveka and Vairagya are the supports of spiritual life, that he cross-references everything he hears in lecture um, through actual comparisons, through corroborated scriptures, and now he's seeking out a guru. So genuine spiritual life begins with this, Viveka, Vairagya, an earnest question and the desire to approach a guru. So far, so good. Isn't it crazy? We're not even like a little bit into the book. And do you already see how many powerful spiritual principles are being expressed? This book is no joke. Okay. 
And then now his resolve, his sankalpa. I will go to the various churches where there are good preachers, and perhaps I will acquire an explanation from them. And so I went. I heard many very good homilies on prayer, but they were all instructions about prayer in general. What is prayer? The necessity of prayer, the fruits of prayer, but no one spoke of the way to be successful in prayer. I did hear a sermon on interior prayer and ceaseless prayer, but nothing about attaining that form of prayer. Since listening to public sermons had not given me any satisfaction, I stopped attending them and decided, by the grace of God, to look for an experienced and learned person who would satisfy my ardent desire and explain ceaseless prayer to me. So whenever we approach the guru, it must be with an ardent desire. You can't frivolously approach gurus. If you don't have this ardent desire, then through the spiritual laws that be, it's unlikely that you will find a guru. The guru always appears when your seeking is sincere enough. When you ardently want spirituality, then almost by magic, the guru appears. So notice he's all set up for success here. He has an ardent desire to approach a teacher, a learned person who can explain to him the mysteries of the inner life. And he's not content to simply hear lectures here and there. You know, he's, he, by his own admission, these are fine lectures but they're talking about very general things in spiritual life, not like specific practice oriented things. Okay. So he's, he's tired a little bit of these very flowery public sermons that speak about lofty ideas with no follow through. So now he's looking for the teacher. Let's continue. For quite a while, I, I traveled through various places. I read the Bible and asked for the whereabouts of a spiritual teacher or a devout and experienced director. Now, you know what the problem is with our current world of spirituality? Nobody is patient enough to wait for the guru. They want a guru and they think one should show up now. No, your mere wanting of a guru is a good indication that a guru will come, but it might not necessarily be now or this year or in the next five years, but trust that the guru is coming and will not come any sooner or any later than the right time. Okay, a wizard is never late. Given that, notice how patient, how patient he is. He says, for quite a while, I traveled through various places. I read the Bible and asked for the whereabouts of a spiritual teacher or a devout and experienced director. Now, it's not that he's become complacent. This is important. Although he's had to wait for a long time, he's not given up. He's still ardently searching for the guru as if it could be around the next corner. So he believes in his heart of hearts that he will find the guru and he searches for the guru, but he's also content to let that take its course. However long it's going to take him, he's content to simply search. So we can learn here patience, right? Patience is the lesson that we get from this chapter. The guru will come, but are you sincerely searching? That's the question. Okay. Um, After some time, I heard of a nobleman in a certain village who takes his salvation seriously. I was told that he has a chapel in his home and does not go out, but spends all his time praying and reading spiritual books. When I heard this, I ran to the mentioned village and sought out this God-fearing landowner. Now, this is important. He doesn't judge a person, a teacher, just because they're a sadhu. He's willing to learn from householders too. This is a mistake that a lot of people make. They think that only monks can teach spirituality. But there are many great householder teachers too. And by limiting yourself to only monks as teachers, you thereby close yourself off to all the great householder teachers. One of them might actually be your guru. Similarly, the same thing can happen in reverse. You might believe that monks cannot teach you. They can only teach other monks. And so you only can get a householder guru and therefore close yourself off to all the mendicants, all the sadhus, all the monastics who otherwise might've been a great guru for you. You see? So notice he's willing to approach anybody and everybody on the condition that they are truly a holy man. What is a holy man? 
Sri Ramakrishna defines it. A holy man is anybody who thinks about God unceasingly, whose whole life is about God, who is not attached to worldliness, who's not attached to lust or gold, or you know, who's not driven by power or pleasure or wealth, who's driven only by God, who talks day and night of God, who thinks day and night of God. That person is a holy man. Now he's heard of a certain nobleman, a landowner, a person with wealth who meets this criteria. You know, a person who devotes their whole time to prayer, never leaves his house like that. So he sought out this God-fearing landowner because he has this enthusiastic willingness to learn from anybody. So I think that's important too. We should note that. Swami Vivekananda would say something similar that he learns from anybody and everybody. In the Bhagavatam, we know about the Avaduta having so many different gurus, you know, innumerable gurus. And one of them was a bird, a kite, because the kite was holding in its mouth a fish and everywhere it went, it was pursued by a mass of black crows. Now, the moment the kite dropped the fish, the crows left it alone and went after the fish. And thereupon, the Avaduta had this great realization. If I give up my craving for pleasure, all my anxieties and worries will leave me too. The black crow of anxiety only follows me insofar as I hold the fish of worldliness. So that kite alone was, was you know, a guru to that Avaduta. But of course, you, know, you have to be very developed to learn from birds and trees and plants. So he's looking for a person. A human guru is very important. Who should teach you? A holy man, a holy woman, a holy person. Seek them out. If ever you sniff a holy person, Go to them, ask them for instruction, seek counsel from a holy man, from a holy woman, from a holy person. So this enthusiastic willingness to learn is, I think, something we ought to take away from this paragraph. What may I do for you? He asked me. I heard that you are a devout and wise man. And I came in the name of God to ask you to explain to me the meaning of the words of St. Paul. Pray constantly. How is it possible to pray constantly? I am very eager to know this and cannot in any way comprehend it. The gentleman was silent for a moment. Then he looked at me intently and said, ceaseless interior prayer is a continuous aspiration and a yearning of the spirit of man toward God. To succeed in this sweet exercise, it is necessary to ask God frequently that he teach you to pray continuously. Pray often and fervently and prayer itself will reveal this mystery to you, how it is possible for it to be continuous. But it takes time. Having said this, he ordered the servants to give me food. He gave me some money for the road and dismissed me. But he did not explain ceaseless prayer. <laughs> so he gave him a bit of a circular response. If you want to learn to pray, you should pray. If you want to learn ceaseless prayer, you should pray fervently that through prayer, you will learn how to ceaselessly pray. So he wasn't satisfied with his answer, but there's something beautiful about it because Sri Ramakrishna often would tell people to simply pray to God for stuff. Yeah, uh, you know, ask God, I don't know. Sri Ramakrishna would give that advice to people when people would say, I feel so stuck in worldliness. How can I come to want God? He would say, pray to God with a yearning heart. Say, God, reveal thyself to me. He would say, God, lessen my duties in the world so that I may have more time to be absorbed in thee. Pray to God for those things and God will surely provide. So Sri Ramakrishna often gives us the sense that God is willing to do anything and everything for a devotee who truly wants God. So if a person takes even one step towards God, God takes 10 steps towards that devotee. Similarly, if you truly want something, you can approach God and say, I want to want you. Make it so that I want you. So that's kind of what the nobleman told him to do. But of course, he wasn't too satisfied with that because he was already doing that, I think. So the instruction wasn't applicable to him. <laughs> Again, I went, I thought, I read, and I meditated on the words of the nobleman. But I could not understand. And my desire to understand became so intense that even my sleep was deserved, disturbed. Do you think you deserve a guru? Do you really think you deserve one? 
Has your sleep been disturbed by this deep, intense yearning for the truth? Do you really want it that bad? Or are you only saying that you do? See, the, the degree to which he wanted this, he said, my desire to understand became so intense that even my sleep was disturbed. I continued my journey for about 200 versts and then found myself in a large provincial city. I saw a monastery. At the inn where I stopped, I heard that the superior of the monastery was very kind, devout, and hospitable to strangers. I went to him. He received me warmly and offered me some refreshments. Reverend Father, I said, I do not need refreshments, but I would like you to give me spiritual advice. I would like to know how to work out my salvation. Work out your salvation? Well, um, keep the commandments and pray to God and you will be saved. I heard that it was necessary to pray without ceasing, but I do not know how to pray without interruption. And I cannot even understand what is meant by ceaseless prayer. Please explain to me this, dear father. I do not know how to make this clear, dear brother. But wait, I have a book which has an explanation. And he brought out a copy of St. Demetrius's Spiritual Instructions for the Interior Man and indicated which page I should read. I began reading the following. The words of the apostle, pray constantly, are to be understood as referring to mental prayer. The mind can be constantly fixed on God and in communion with him. So that's what interior prayer is, mental prayer. So now we know this is Manasa Japa the mental recitation, but we don't know yet that. We don't know that yet from the text. We just know it from our studies. Please explain to me how the mind can always be set on God and not distracted, but continuously praying. So here, the first thing that should come to mind is, well, if the mind is supposed to continuously be praying, well, what about all the natural distractions that are inherent in the mind? It's hard to pray unceasingly. The mind is so scattered and so distracted. So he's saying, uh, how do I not be distracted? How do I pray continuously? This is exceptionally difficult to understand unless God himself reveals it, said the father superior. And he did not explain. Drat, another dead end. But he got a clue. So notice how exciting this is, right? He's like a rat in a maze. He's, he's following the cookie crime. He's on a quest. He hears about a nobleman. He goes. He goes to an inn. He hears about um, the superiors of the monastery. He goes. He gets a clue here. He gets a clue there. That's what the beginning of spiritual life is like, putting together the pieces from here and there sayings. Isn't that beautiful and exciting? Now, Sri Ramakrishna, uh, with regards to this is exceptionally difficult to understand unless God himself reveals it, once said to M, it is by God's grace alone that you understand that. See, Sri Ramakrishna had made a point and then he quizzed M on something and then M replied and the answer was correct or M said something like, yes, I understand. Shravakrishna, without missing a beat, said, remember, it is God's grace alone that you understood that. So you could tell the truth to somebody. They just might not understand it. Again, for reasons aforementioned, Shaktipata, it's not the right time yet, etc. I spent the night at the monastery and in the morning expressed my gratitude for the warm reception and continued with my journey, not knowing where it would take me. I grieved over my lack of understanding, and for consolation, I read the Bible. For five days, I traveled in this manner on a long and wide road, and toward the evening of the fifth day, an old man caught up with me who looked like a member of some religious community. Ah, enter the guru. Now notice, you don't have to seek the guru. If your seeking is ardent enough, the guru seeks you. You can't run away from the guru. He's like literally walking on the street and this old man runs up to catch up to him. You know, this, this religious looking man, this wise and sagacious elder, like runs towards him and catches up with him on the road itself. So relax. The guru has always been behind you, right? When your earnest, sincere prayer, like 
you know, truly arises, then he will catch up with you. He's behind you on the road. He, she, they, they'll soon come up and make themselves known. To my, uh, okay. To my question, he answered that he was a monk and that his hermitage was about 10 versts from the main road. And he invited me to visit the hermitage. We receive pilgrims and strangers and give them food and lodging in our guest house, he said. Since I had no inclination to stop there, I replied, my peace does not depend on a place to stay, but on spiritual direction. I am not looking for food as I have enough bread in my knapsack. Oh my God. I don't think that needs to be commented upon. Enough said. My peace does not depend on a place to stay, but on spiritual direction. And what manner of direction are you looking for? What seems to be puzzling you? Come, come, dear brother, visit us. We have experienced elders who can give spiritual nourishment and direct one on the path of truth according to the word of God and the writings of the Holy Fathers. Spiritual people recognize each other, you know? One hemp smoker recognizes another, as Sri Ramakrishna likes to say. You see, Father, about a year ago, while I was at a liturgy, I heard the following admonition from the Apostle Paul. Pray constantly. Not being able to understand this, I began to read the Bible, where in many places I found God's precept that it is necessary to pray continuously, to pray always, at all times, and in all places, not only while working, not only when awake, but also in one sleep. I sleep, but my heart is awake. He gives another reference. I was very surprised by this and could not understand how this could be possible and by what means it could be accomplished. A strong desire and curiosity took hold of me and night and day it did not leave me. For this reason, I went from church to church to listen to sermons on prayer. And though I've heard a great, very many of them, I did not receive the desired instruction, how to pray without ceasing. The homilies I heard were about the preparation for prayer or the fruits of prayer and similar things, but I did not learn how to pray without ceasing or what is the meaning of such prayer. I kept reading the Bible and in this way, I tested what I had heard, but I could not find the desired knowledge. And so to this day, I am left bewildered and without peace. To this extent, I think scriptural knowledge is very important. To this extent, I think one should be schooled in any tradition and arguably in many different traditions. One should be to some degree a pandit because then you can test what you heard, right? So you're not just like taken for a ride by anybody and everybody. That's why study is important. Although it's limited, it certainly gives you this ability, as he's now saying, to test what he had heard. However, he was still left bewildered and without peace. Okay, now it begins. Now comes the instruction of interior prayer. Remember, this is the guru. So these are the guru's words, very sacred. The elder blessed himself and began to speak. Thank God, dear brother, for this insatiable desire to understand ceaseless mental prayer. Recognize in this a call from God and be at peace. Believe that up to this time, your seeking was in accordance with God's will and you were given to understand that heavenly light regarding continuous prayer is not arrived at by worldly wisdom and superficial curiosity. On the contrary, it is discovered in the spirit of poverty and simplicity of heart through active experience. Therefore, it is not surprising that you did not hear about the essential act of prayer and learn how to carry it out without ceasing. Okay, by now, many people who might have joined us at the beginning of the lecture have since left. That's good. Why? Superficial curiosity will never do. 
You can't just watch a little bit of something or read a little bit of something. You must really want to know. You must be wanting to know with bated breath. You should be on the very edge of your seat now to hear what the elder is going to say about interior prayer. It is not surprising that you did not hear about the essential act of prayer. It is discovered in the spirit of poverty and simplicity of heart through active experience, not through book learning, not through clever words, but through active experience and simplicity. The truth is that though there is neither a shortage of sermons nor of treatises of various writers about prayer, for the most part, these discourses are based on mental analysis on on natural considerations rather than on active experience. For this reason, they teach more about the external character of prayer rather than the essence of prayer. One speaks beautifully about the necessity of prayer, another about its power and its benefits, and still another of the means and conditions for its accomplishment, that is zeal, nishta, attention, samadana, warmth of heart, purity of thought, reconciliation with the enemies, humility, contrition, and so on. And what is prayer? And how does one learn to pray? To these primary and most fundamental questions, one seldom finds an accurate explanations in the homilies of our time. These basic questions are more difficult to understand than the above mentioned discourses, and they require mystical perception in addition to academic learning. What is most unfortunate is that worldly wisdom compels these spiritual teachers to measure God's ways by human standards. Many approach prayer with a misunderstanding and think that the preparatory means and acts produce prayer. They do not see that prayer is the source of all good actions and virtue. They look upon the fruits and results of prayer as means and methods, and in this way, depreciate the power of prayer. This is contrary to Holy Scripture, because St. Paul clearly states that prayer should precede all actions. Here's the karma yoga bit. First of all, there should be prayers offered. The Apostles' Directive indicates that the act of prayer comes first. It comes before everything else. The Christian is expected to perform many good works, but the act of prayer is fundamental because without prayer, it is not possible to do good. Swami Vivekananda says, only the monk can do real good to humanity because only the monk has stepped out of his own way enough to render actual service. The world is full of like eco-terrorists and activists who are really ultimately doing way more harm than good. They're just causing a big furor in the social media spaces and on the streets. But ultimately, this will come and go. You know, what really helps the world is work done in a spirit of service, but as an act of worship. So he's saying that prayer precedes all actions. Without frequent prayer, it is not possible to find one's way to God, to understand truth and to crucify the lusts of the flesh. I love that. Only fidelity to prayer will lead a person to enlightenment and union with Christ. So the ends have been stated, union with Christ, oneness with your ishta, to truth, right? The ends have been stated, and now the means have been expressed. Um, fidelity to prayer. I say frequent prayer. Now, mark this carefully. This maybe is the first principle of practice. Thus far, we've only done some setup. Now comes the first principle of practice. This is the guru's first instruction. So mark this carefully perhaps the most important instruction from the Guru. I say frequent prayer because purity and perfection in prayer is not within our reach, as St. Paul the Apostle indicates. The Spirit comes to help us in our weakness when we do not know how to pray. Consequently, our only contribution toward prayer 
or sorry, our only contribution towards perfection in prayer, the mother of all spiritual good is regularity and constancy. If you win the mother, you will have the children also, says St. Isaac of Syria. Acquire the habit of prayer and it will be easy for you to do good. This basic truth regarding prayer is not clearly understood or presented by those who are lacking practical experience and who are not acquainted with the mystical teachings of the Holy Fathers. I cannot stress this point more. If you sit down to meditate and expect that you'll have a good meditation, be careful. Perfection in meditation is not given unto us. It's not within our control to achieve perfection. Our only contribution towards good practice is constant, regular practice. Isn't that such a liberating thing to hear? You don't have to worry about your practices, in, at least in the beginning, being good. Don't worry about quality. That comes of its own accord through regularity and consistency. So all you have to do is show up regularly. That's it. And he's saying, you know, this secret this um, basic truth regarding prayer is not clearly understood. Many people feel like they can get by with only five minutes of meditation here and there. It won't cut it. If you really want to make progress in the spiritual life, you must meditate regularly and consistently every day, day in and day out, no matter what. It's okay if you're starting with one minute or three minutes or five minutes a day. It doesn't matter how long your sessions are. It's only important that in the beginning, they're as consistent as possible. So resolve now that you're going to take up spiritual life and take up spiritual practice. Then resolve to practice at least twice, if not thrice a day. First thing you do in the morning should be practice. Last thing you do in the day should be practice. Or at the very least, um, at dawn, practice once. That's better than nothing. You know, at the very beginning of your day, just practice. However much you practice is good practice. Just make sure you're regular and consistent with it. So in our tradition, we say the best times to practice are at dawn, right before the sun rises. That's Brahma Muhurta. It's very sattvic time. And there, very few obstacles present themselves. The mind is naturally calm, naturally indrawn. So you'll have the best time of it in this pre-dawn period. Very sattvic time, very pure time for practice. Then the second time is noon. So this junction between one half of the day and the other half of the day. Then the next time is dusk. This is also a very powerful time. Sri Ramakrishna would just inadvertently become abstracted at this time. You know, once dusk came around, he would start chanting Om Kali, Om Kali like that. He would just go into his you know, state. So similarly, you two should be like that. When dusk comes, as far as possible, get to the mat or at least wherever you might find yourself, pause and do a little practice. So commit to practicing twice, if not thrice a day at regular times. And in the beginning, do your best to keep to those times no matter what. Now, of course, some leeway is allowed, right? So don't like stress yourself out over this. You don't have to be there at exactly noon. And if you're one minute late, you freak out. No, no, no. If you arrive at one o'clock for your noon meditation, that's fine. If you start your noon meditation at 1130 in the morning, that's fine. If you don't get up before sunrise, chill. If you're up at 830, 930, heck, if you're up at 10, doesn't matter. Just start your day with practice. So don't, don't freak out about it. Don't let this become a hindrance, but at least commit to some level of consistency. So say now that I'm going to practice and I'm going to practice twice, if not thrice a day, set clear cut times for it. Tell everyone in your household that those are your times and then don't compromise. No matter what, do not give ground. If you're sleepy one day, do your best to get out of bed and go to the shower. Okay. If you're feeling like today you can skip practice, don't, don't be careful. You must keep to the schedule in the beginning. The body must acclimate to daily regular prayer. After all, this world has had innumerable lifetimes to condition you. It's repetitively, constantly, and regularly conditioned you to behave like a limited individual. In order to uncover your true nature as Brahman, it's going to take just as much, if not more, regularity, consistency, and repetition. So you must fight repetition with repetition. That's the first rule. Our only contribution towards proper practice is constancy and regularity. 
The course of this conversation brought us close to the hermitage. In order not to let this wise man go and to quickly receive my heart's desire, I hurried to ask him, please be gracious, Reverend Father, and explain the meaning of ceaseless mental prayer to me and show me how I can learn to practice it. I can see that you are both well-versed and experienced in this matter. The elder received my plea lovingly and invited me to visit him in his cell. Come, stop by, and I will give you a book of the Holy Fathers from which, with the help of God, you can learn all about prayer and understand it clearly and in detail. When we entered his cell, the elder said, okay, now you heard about when to practice. Now you're going to hear about how. I think this is the part we've all been waiting for, right? This is the big punchline. This is the how to practice spirituality. Here it comes. You're first going to get a what, and then you're going to get a how. So attend to this carefully. The elder said, the ceaseless Jesus prayer is a continuous, uninterrupted call on the holy name of Jesus Christ with the lips, mind, and heart. And in the awareness of his abiding presence, it is a plea for his blessing in all undertakings, in all places, at all times, even in sleep. The words of the prayer are, now this is the mantra diksha, meaning he's about to receive his mantra from the guru. In the tantric, in the tantric yoga tradition, um, this is actually the formal beginning of spiritual life. You go to a teacher. You express your desire to actually walk the path. And then your teacher sets a certain date. Maybe it's an auspicious day of the month or something, or maybe it's then and there. But the formal diksha is a ceremony in which the teacher gives you a mantra. That's how a guru initiates you, by giving you a mantra in a ritualistic context. Now, in dualistic tantra, it's very heavy on the rituals. In non-dualistic tantra, diksha could be casual. Sri Ramakrishna would just anywhere, anytime, write a mantra on your tongue and give you diksha. He would pat you on the back and give you diksha. You can gain diksha through a glance even from a guru and the mantra will awaken in you. But anyway, formally speaking, when you receive a mantra from a guru, that mantra is charged with a certain potency. It's called mantra virya. So that's a jagrat mantra, an awakened mantra, meaning that mantra has been chanted by your guru, by your guru's guru, by your guru's guru's guru, on all the way up through the lineage. So it has a certain power, a certain momentum. So when you receive that mantra, you're receiving also the Guru Shakti in that mantra. So much for the Tantric initiation. So this is the mantra diksha of the Christian mystical tradition. The elder says to him, yes, Emily, the drum roll, here it is. The words of the prayer are, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me. Or Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Anyone who becomes accustomed to this prayer will experience great comfort as well as the need to say it continuously. He will become accustomed to it to such a degree that he will not be able to do without it. And eventually the prayer of itself will flow in him. So just through constant repetition, repetition, the, the mantra comes alive, so to speak, and it will chant itself within you. But that's a very advanced state. You know, when you start to feel the mantra itself going you know, actually, not just in an imagined way, but in an actual way, you feel that abiding presence aforementioned. Now, do you understand what ceaseless prayer is? Japa, right? Japa yoga, the recitation of a mantra, the recitation of a prayer that you do all the time, everywhere, in every place, no matter what. 
And that can go on mentally, right? He said with the lips, with the mind, and with the heart. So remember, in the tantric tradition, mantra can be done in three ways. One, uh, aloud, uchara, loudly. You can do the mantra as a spoken word. Or you can do upamshu, whispered mantra. And thirdly, you can do it as a mental recitation. Of these three, the mental recitation is the best. The verbal recitations are kind of weak because you can do them, but often the mind can become distracted. So you might be mechanically going through the motions while the mind wanders into wherever else it might wander. Okay, if you do it in a whispered way, that's a little more focused, a little more interior. But of course, the most interior, the most sattvic is of course, Manasa Puja. This is of course, all on the level, level of practice. Eventually though, you'll attain to Ajapa. Ajapa means the mantra is just naturally going on in, in you. Ajapa can also mean samadhi. It's when you hear the mantra rather than recite the mantra. It's when you no longer do the mantra, the mantra is doing you. When you no longer pray to God, God is praying you in some sense. Okay, so that we don't talk about. But it's indicated here that the prayer will of its own accord flow within you. So there is a reference to Ajapa. And Ajapa, this automatic prayer, comes through uh, a custom. You have to become accustomed. You know? Okay, so now do you understand what Caesar's prayer is? So just be very clear. Prayer is Japa. Prayer is a recitation of this prayer, of this mantra. Okay? Very clearly, dear father, for the love of God, please teach me how to make it my own. I exclaimed in joy. He's come to the end of his quest. He's heard it. He's heard what prayer is. And he has a clear understanding of what it is. Now it's time to learn how to do it. So notice he says, please teach me how to make it my own. He's heard an idea. He's fascinated with it. He's excited. And now he wants to learn how to integrate it, how to assimilate it. To learn about this prayer, we will read from a book called the Philokalia. Dum, dum, dum. It's a very serious and wonderful compilation of writings from the Desert Father. So, okay. This book, which was compiled by the 25 Holy Fathers, contains complete and detailed instructions about Caesar's prayer. The content of this book is of such depth and usefulness that it is considered to be the primary teacher of the contemplative life. And as the venerable Nicephorus says, it leads one to salvation without labor and sweat. Uh, you know, my burden is light and my yoke is easy. You think spiritual life is hard? No, no, it's easy. It's much easier to get up in the morning um, before sunrise, take a bath and enjoy the bliss of meditation than it is to wake up late and be buffeted by the winds of the world. The world is painful, man. It's rough living out there. Spiritual life is so nice. <laughs> it's so sweet and full of joy. You never worry about anything after a while. <laughs> yeah. So it leads to salvation without much labor and sweat. Also, you don't really need these complicated Vedic homophires or pujas. It's enough to just repeat this. It's, it's without labor and sweat, you know? Very straightforward. Is it then more important than the Holy Bible? I asked. No, it is neither more important nor holier than the Bible. This is the Philokalia. But it contains clear exposition of the ideas that are mysteriously presented in the Bible and are not easy for our finite mind to understand. I will give you an illustration. The sun, a great shining and magnificent light, cannot be contemplated and looked at directly with the naked eye. An artificial glass, a million times smaller and dimmer than the sun, is needed to look at the great king of lights to be enraptured by its fiery rays. In a similar way, the Holy Bible is a shining light and the philokalia is the necessary glass. Okay, I'm going to depart from the book a bit and give you a yogic interpretation of why it's good to meditate on God with form based on this reasoning. Now, many of you like the formless God, right? That's all well and good. God is both formless and with form. However, I would implore you to take up a symbol in the beginning 
as a kind of stand-in for the infinite formless Brahman, because it's very difficult to meditate on the infinite in a finite mind. The mind is used to form. The mind is used to uh, symbols. The mind, in fact, only thinks in symbols. So given that, you need to choose a symbol for God. God, who is the self of yourself, cannot be seen directly. It's like the blazing sun. You know, the sun of jnana requires the moon of bhakti. So the light of the moon is not different from the light of the sun. It's just cooling. You know, the ability to look at the moon is a given, but you can't look at the sun, at least not in the beginning. And I certainly don't recommend it. Whatever the new age enema, you know, butthole sunning, stare at the sun, you know, people are telling you, I wouldn't recommend looking straight at the sun. Okay. So notice we need some kind of mirror to understand the infinite in a finite mind. You need some kind of mirror that reflects the infinite. So therefore the Hindu resorts to a series of symbols. Now, all of these are just various mirrors in which that one Brahman, that self of myself shines. So Swami Vivekananda says, the only thing you can't see is you, the self, because it's the looker, right? So this light of the self is thrown out into the world and it's reflected back to you in everything, protoplasms, you know, like animals, trees, but a murky mirror will give you a murky reflection. So if you look for yourself in murky mirrors, you'll see something of yourself. Hence the fascination with the world, but it's not a clear picture. However, if you see your face in a clear pond, you'll get an even better reflection, like in great artists and great musicians and you know celebrities or whatever. But if you look in a mirror, then you'll get the clearest reflection of all. What's the mirror? Ultimately, Sh Sh Swami Vivekananda ends up saying avatars. Avatars are the best mirror in which to see Brahman manifest. So Jesus Christ, Buddha, Rama, Krishna, um, and Ramakrishna, these are all the best things to meditate on. In the case of Ramakrishna, there's an actual picture of him. You know, so I think that's quite helpful. But any image, any symbol is valuable. As long as you understand that that symbol, that image is reflecting the truth that is within you. So God's not out there. God's not really an image. God is who you are, the essence of your being. But since you cannot look at the looker, man, sounds so like new age, 60s, like we're at Burning Man or something. You can't look at the looker, man, says some chat on a lot of acid. Sorry about that. But notice, um, while you can't look at the looker, it's good to, to, to look at it through the image of something. So in the yogic tradition, we say there are two types of meditation. There's saguna dhyana and nirguna dhyana. There's meditation on the form and there's meditation on the formless. While ultimately you will become developed in both, and you should practice both, and you can practice them both together. It's very valuable, at least in the beginning of spiritual life, to do saguna dhyana, understanding that this saguna is nothing other than the nirguna. So let me explain that with less Sanskrit. Pick anybody, Jesus, Buddha, Ramakrishna, or anybody, you know, um, that appeals to you, that inspires you, that you feel great love for, and then use that as a mirror, as a symbol for the self. So just like you can't look at the sun, you must use the moon or some kind of glass. So too, should you pick up some kind of symbol? That's called in Indian spirituality, the Ishta Devata. In some cases you choose, but most of the time the guru gives you one. So when the guru gives you a mantra, the guru also gives you a deity to which the mantra is ascribed. So you might receive like a Shiva mantra. And at that point, you'd be invited to meditate on Shiva in one of his forms. There's a dancing Shiva, maybe the meditating Shiva over there, or maybe Mother Kali or something like that. So um, the mantra often goes with the deity and meditation is a matter of using that symbol, the deity, to reflect the sun of the, you know, jnana. Okay, so, so much for that. Now let's see what the directions are. Now, if you will listen, I will read how you can learn ceaseless interior prayer. The elder opened the Philokalia to the account of St. Simeon, the new theologian, and began reading. So here's your directions. Sit alone and in silence. 
bow your head and close your eyes. Relax your breathing. And with your imagination, look into your heart. Direct your thoughts from your head and into your heart. And while inhaling, say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, either softly with your lips or in your mind. Endeavor to fight distractions, but be patient and peaceful and repeat this process frequently. So just mark this final phrase, endeavor to fight distractions, but be patient, be peaceful and repeat this process frequently. You know, a lot of us are really disappointed by how simple all of this is. All you're invited to do is sit quietly, alone, bow your head, close your eyes, relax your breathing, and direct your mind away from the head and into the heart. You know, it's kind of weird at first, but it's like you're outside of yourself looking into yourself. It's not going to come naturally at first. You're going to feel like you're seated up here looking from your eyes. I mean, after all, we spend so much time here looking through these eyes. It will take a while to become unstuck and awaken inner spiritual sight, you know? But after a while, it will be possible for you to actually see from the heart itself to, uh, you know, as, as Westifer will tell you from the Christian mystical tradition, the heart itself is a perceptive center. You can see from the heart and what's more, you can see into the heart with an inner eye, not just these eyes. But in the beginning, you know, what's gonna feel like? It's gonna feel like you're sitting there and like you're in the head here, looking down at your heart and trying to like look out and in. It's gonna be weird, but you have to persist to it. Yeah, isn't it crazy, Jamie? Isn't it so crazy? See my claim? If you can find similar instructions for Japa Yoga in a Christian mystical text, and by the way, I'm going to make a reference to Islam too at the end of all of this, it's clear that that practice must be the best practice. Why? Because it's corroborated over a vast number of traditions. This is so exciting. This is like striking gold, right? This is like a powerful discovery that the practice you are being given is not idiosyncratic to any one tradition locked up to one cultural milieu and no longer applicable to us now. It's a corroborated practice shared by mystics all over the world. And all over the world, these people are achieving the vision of God through simply chanting the name of God. Can it be more simple? Could it be simpler than this? You just have to say the name over and over and over. You just have to sit, bow your head, direct your attention into the heart, patiently, peacefully, with great repetition, with a lot of, you know, over and over kind of constancy. Just do it. You know, breathe in the mantra, breathe out the mantra. We'll do a, med we'll do a seated meditation, maybe God willing to close. So we'll, we'll revisit these instructions. But just note, the instructions are very simple, very direct. Oh, this was a gift. These fell out of the book. I hadn't understood that they were in there. But that's so sweet. Amma came. Amma jumped out of the book. Amma got so excited. She was like, yes, it's really this simple. Just repeat my name. You know, how easy is it? Oh my God, right? Oh my God. You, on, on Instagram, you see all these like ayahuasca 500 day retreats and like all these like super like difficult pranayamas and this and that. And here you are receiving such a simple instruction. Just sit quietly, close your eyes, repeat the name of God. Right? Yeah, that was Anjali saying hello. The mother Mary jumped out. No, where is Anjali? I think Anjali would enjoy this. Her ancestors are these people, you know, these uh, Levantine holy fathers. Okay. The elder illustrated this passage for me. And then we read the accounts of St. Gregory of Sinai and Venerable Callistus and Ignatius. All the material which we read in the Philokalia, the elder explained in his own words. This is important. He's not just parroting back the words of his betters. Remember in the Kula Arnava Tantra, it says, are minors great scholars because they can parrot back the words of their betters? Are, are, are donkeys great yogis because they wandered about naked, covered in ash? No, it takes more than outer garb, right? It takes more than citing and quoting. So notice the elder is taking the time to explain things in his own words, which is very beautiful. I listened with attention and delight. I listened with attention and delight to everything 
and endeavored to remember as much as I could. We spent the whole night in this way. And in the morning, we went to the Matons without having slept. <laughs> Those of you in this room know what that's like, right? Just to kind of sit up all night talking about God and never feeling tired and always being delighted and always being excited, you know? Okay. When I left, the elder blessed me and encouraged me to come to him for direction and confession during the course of my study of prayer. He said that without guidance of a director, it is not very profitable to study interior life. Hence the importance of the check-in. You have to check in regularly. You have to update what's going on with you, how the practice is progressing. Don't just go off to the corner and do it because a little bit of a uh, what do you call it? Like a little one degree off course will result in a huge change over time as to where you end up. Every airplane pilot knows this. So even one degree off course could mean the difference between Beirut and Bangkok. Okay. So given that you must constantly be corrected. You must constantly check in with your guru. Your guru must constantly be sure that you're, you know, on the right track. Sri Ramakrishna often when people were meditating a lot, he would actually say, and this is only for those who meditate a lot. He would say, are you straining yourself? Are you meditating too much? Can you imagine for him to say that? I mean, he pushed, he really pushed people, you know, at, at some corner of the temple garden, Latu or somebody would be absorbed in meditation at all times, Bhavanath or Harish or, some, Harish or something, they'd all be absorbed. Um, but he would often say to people, you know, and he would often call them and check in with them and talk to them. So the role of a guru is to constantly check in with you. If they don't, you can become a bit, yeah, as Tara is saying, spooky. You become a bit idiosyncratic and weird. So you have to check in. If you're doing daily spiritual practice, it's important to receive counsel. I mean, this doesn't mean like text every five minutes, every time you like have a bit of an experience. No, it could mean that. But most of the time, don't, don't harass your guru like that. Go every two or three weeks or every now and then. I, I'm a bit of a guru harasser. So I'm like at his door all every day, like not every day, but often like, Maraj, Maraj, what does this mean? Sometimes I, I pounce pounce on him during his walks. He takes walks in the parking lot. And it's basically like I jump out of the bushes and I catch his feet and I'm like, Maraj. And he's like, this guy again. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> okay. Later, while standing in church, I felt a burning zeal to learn ceaseless prayer. And I asked God to help me in this. But then I became concerned about having a place to stay while going to the elder for direction. At the inn, I could not stay more than three days. And there were no apartments available close to the hermitage. Fortunately, I heard of a village about four versts away. And I went there to look. God was with me and helped me to find a place. I made arrangements with a farmer to live in a little hut and guard his vegetable garden during the summer months. Glory be to God. Jai Makali. I found a quiet place. Now I could begin to study interior prayer according to the method which was shown to me and I could still visit the elder. So this is important. If you really want God, don't worry. The means will be made for you. You need a place to say, don't worry. If you want God, one will come. If you need a simple living, you know, to support your family and yourself in simplicity, it will come. Why worry? All you have to want is want God. If you want God, I promise you, you will never worry about your finances ever again. Mark my words, sue me, slap me if that's wrong. If you really want God, but you have to truly want God. If you really want God, I swear to you, God will look after all of your needs. It has been true in my life, in the life of countless others that I've met. It is one inviolable spiritual law that if you want to stop worrying about money, renounce it completely and think about God. <laughs> then you will never be lacking. If you're finding you have money problems, you know what's happening? You're holding the fish in your mouth. You know, and of course the crows are going to chase you. If you have that smelly fish in your mouth, wherever you fly, the crows of anxiety and depression and worry will follow you. Drop the damn crow. Give up money. 
I mean, you have to save, make sure householders have to save, but it's never your money. It's always just there in the bank. It's God's money. Just give it up. No longer desire things in the world. Don't think you're going to buy anything and become happy through buying. You know better, right? You know that nothing you can buy in this world will make you happy lastingly. So give up this need to live an opulent life. Just live simply, take what comes, you know, eat what's given to you, well-cooked or ill, you know, just be simple. Why? Because your luxury is of the spirit as we'll learn it a little bit. But if you truly have this simplicity, then why shouldn't God take care of you? You know, you've placed your trust in her. She sure, what kind of mother would she be if she didn't take care of a child when the child was defenseless and came crying to her, no? Okay, for a week, I followed the instructions of the elder and studied ceaseless prayer alone in the vegetable garden. And for a while I managed. Then a great burden came upon me. Okay, this is important. For a week, he took it. This is his sadhana. He started for a week. He was practicing. And for a while he managed. Then, dum, 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 the great burden, act two. Then a great burden came upon me. Laziness. Boredom. <gasps> Drowsiness. <gasps> and a cloud of disturbing thoughts seemed to overwhelm me. Now, who has not experienced that? Yes, Emily's a humanist. If you try, you know, you'll become lazy, drowsy. Who hasn't fallen asleep in meditation, right? Like, you fall asleep. Hey, posture is very important. If you don't want to fall asleep, sit tall. Sit upright. You know, chin in, chest broad. Be alert. Especially when receiving spiritual instruction, don't sit near your guru like that. Be careful. And nothing will happen unless the spine is aligned, you know? So when receiving spiritual instruction, when meditating, when praying, sit tall, sit erect, you know? But remember, yeah, remember, this is natural. He, this great monk, I mean, he's, he's, he's on the path like the rest of us, but notice he's saying these, these obstacles came, laziness, he didn't want to do it, you know? boredom. He was feeling like a fatigue and a boredom. You know, you can add even to this shamshaya, doubt. All of this is described in the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, right? There are all these obstacles to yoga, the vignesh, um, all these, not the kleshas, but the vignesh, these things that kind of, you know, get in the way, ill health, tiredness, sleepiness, drowsiness, basically inertia, tamas of every sort. So laziness, boredom, drowsiness, and a cloud of disturbing thoughts. You know, many people say to me, when, when they come for instruction for meditation, I can't meditate because I'm distracted. No, no, don't worry. It's not you. It's the mind itself that's like that. Obviously, we're all in a different part of that you know, spectrum of disturbance, but mind inherently is disturbed. Don't ever expect to sit there and be calm. There will come this cloud of disturbing thoughts. Now, he's upset. In my sorrow, I went to see the elder and explained my situation to him. It's good to talk about your difficulties in practice. He welcomed me lovingly and said, dearly beloved brother, a war has been declared against you by the world of darkness. Okay, remember, this is Christianity, so it has Zoroastrian roots, okay? Remember, Zoroastrianism is a very good versus evil kind of system. So there's Ahriman, the evil spirit, and then there's Ahura Mazda, the Lord of Light. And, you know, Ahura Mazda, he at the beginning of time, sees his nemesis, Ariman. And actually, you know, according to Zarathustra, uh, Zoroaster, you know what Ariman did? He, I'm sorry, Ahura Mazda, he like apparently put his hand out to shake Ariman's hand. He just wanted to be friends, but Ariman was like slapped his hand away and then they started a war. And they're like the Farvashis, you know, it's, it's a whole thing. But this battle of good and evil is, it, it's an ancient thing. 1400 BCE in Persia, eventually it came to influence all the Abrahamic faiths. So you're getting a taste of this dualistic kind of thing, but it's kind of fun actually, because if you think of, from non-dualist point of view, if you think about all this as mother's game, then what fun would it be without some kind of push and pull? You know, people would ask Sri Ramakrishna, why is it so hard? Why is spiritual life so hard? And Sri Ramakrishna would say, it's all mother's fun. It's, you know, the world is there to create saints. And that's really beautiful. Sainthood would be cheap if there wasn't a real fight. 
You know, how, how boring would spiritual life be if it was on easy mode all the time? You know, so it's good. It's good that it's difficult. So I'm going to read this now, but don't get scared. Don't become overly dualistic. Just read this in the spirit of non-dual play. Okay, this is just a game that mother is playing with herself. She is both the forces of good and evil. All right, so that's the non-dualistic commentary here. A war has been... No, you won't wish that, cutie babe. Oh, hello, cutie. That's a, that's a very fortunate name. <laughs> no, you won't wish that. Do you know why? Because if it was on easy mode, you would get bored so quickly. You need a bit of push and pull. Trust me, if, if spirituality was really easy, it wouldn't be that valuable. It's valuable because it's the greatest adventure of a human life. It's like it would be easier to take the ring to Mordor. Remember that payoff after sitting through like nine hours of Lord of the Rings? And that's only if you watch the theatrical versions. Okay, we played Lord of the Rings on hard mode. We watched all the like extended editions. So that takes you to like three days of nonstop watching, you know? And by the end of it all, the payoff of them getting back to Rivendell after having taken the ring to Mordor, covered in grime and filth and without one finger and full of blood, you know, that like Nirvana vibe of, you know, soaked in bleach and doused in oil, you know, that's, that's when you get this wonderful payoff. So you, you don't want it to be easy, trust me. It's nice that it's hard. It's fun because it's hard. Okay. He didn't even throw it into the fire. Throw it into the fire, Mr. Frodo. No, Sam, the ring is mine. Sorry. Um, you, a war has been declared against you by the world of darkness, a world which finds nothing as terrifying as heartfelt prayer and therefore tries by all means possible to confuse you and distract you from your purpose of learning how to pray. However, even the action of the enemy is permitted by God's will to the extent that it is necessary for us. It seems that your humility needs to be tested, my young Paduan, and that you are not yet ready to enter the interior of your heart, for you may fall into spiritual greediness. Mark this carefully. Those tests are very valuable because they create humility. They show us where we're not. And every time we fall, we efface the ego. So in some sense, failure in spiritual life is the practice. Just like failing over and over and over, that kind of scrubs the ego and you, you kind of become okay with it. And you take life less seriously. You know, I we start the day, right? Let's say we come to meditation. First thing we do, say we meditate for an hour. That's like 59 minutes of failure and one, maybe if one minute even of like focus. I failed like, 59 times. Heck, it's not 59 times. It's every second failing, right? I've already failed innumerable times at the very start of my day. What harm can the day do to me after that? Then you kind of float through the day with like this sweetness because you've already put in all your failure. You're okay with failure now. You're okay to try. You're okay to fail. It's very wonderful, actually. It builds his resilience. I will read you a directive from the Philokalia regarding such a situation. Now, remember how I said Manasa Puja was a bit better than spoken Puja? I mean, sorry, not Japa, Manasa Japa. Um, is better than spoken japa, right? So you, you understand why that is, because you can speak and the mind can be elsewhere, whereas mental puja is usually, it's hard to be kind of dis deceived, okay? However, now he's about to make a reference to using your voice. Now, this could mean in the tantric tradition, bhajan and kirtan, singing aloud the name of God. Typically, you don't want to say your mantra aloud for fear of like revealing it, okay? So we want to keep the mantra secret, typically. However, if you are alone, as the hermit is indeed alone, then it might might be valuable to take up this instruction, especially in moments of great disturbance. So he says, the elder found the instruction of the venerable Nisiphorus, the solitary, and began, if in spite of all effort, you cannot enter the interior of the heart in the way which was explained to you, then do what I tell you. And with God's help, you will reach your goal. Man's vocal cords enable him to speak 
to vocalize words. Use this ability then. And, 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 and while fighting distractions, diligently and continuously say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy up, uh, on me. If you will persevere for some time, then without any doubt, the path to the heart will be open to you. This has been verified through experience. Of course, now we can talk about the Anahata Chakra and the path to the heart and the blooming of the 12 petal lotus, but let's not get into that. It's enough now to say the path of the heart will be open if you use your voice. You know, sing the praises of God, chant the name of God loudly with a beaming face, chant aloud the name of God like that. So this might be a valuable strategy for you. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. So maybe you're fighting lust. Maybe you're fighting greed. Maybe you're fighting distraction. You know, cry out to God. Use your prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me. Well, why, why do you feel shameful about being on your knees, wringing your hands and shouting the name of God? That's wonderful too. Jai Makali, Makali, Om, Om, Hari Om, Tatsat, Hari Om, Tatsat. Why not? You know, that's the Tamasic Bhakta. Sri Ramakrishna often says the Tamasic Bhakta will shout, Reveal thyself to me, Hara, Hara, Vom, Vom. You know, like the Shaivas do that sometimes. So it's okay, be loud, be strong. Um, funnily, in a biography, no, autobiography, um, does the noise in my head bother you? Steven Tyler's autobiography, you know, the lead singer of Aerosmith. Second rock and roll reference. I mean, this is a long one. I'm taking my liberties. So we got two. So um, in that, that book, you know, Stephen Hawking, <laughs> Stephen Tyler, <laughs> who, by the way, is like the Stephen Hawking of rock and roll, right? <laughs> Love in an elevator. <laughs> okay, anyway. So he says in that um, book, he says, you have to talk tough to your demons. I was like, damn, that's good. You have to talk tough to your demons. So use your voice. And I think last week we spoke about that book, Talking Back, you know, the monk's handbook for combating demons. So you can talk and say things aloud. So I think that's val very valuable. This has been verified through experience. Okay. Do you hear what the Holy Fathers say about a case similar to yours? Asked the elder. Therefore, you ought to receive this exhortation with faith and say the Jesus prayer vocally as often as possible. Here is a rosary on which you can count. And in the beginning, say the prayer at least 3,000 times a day. Okay, so a guru gives you a mantra. A guru instructs you in practice. The guru also gives you a japa mala, a rosary, a garland of like beads, right? So it's, I think, kind of, it's a sign that someone has taken you on as a disciple often when they give you a rosary. So he's given him a rosary. Now look at this. He gave him preliminary instructions. So this was his neophyte phase, his probationary phase. Now that he's shown real zeal, real perseverance, now he's given him a discipline, a kind of structured course. So 3,000 times a day, how many hours is that? Does anybody want to guess? 3,000 times of japa recitation on a mala, how many hours a day of meditation is that? Three. In your call to arms, third volume, how many hours of meditation are you told to do? Three. Notice this is kind of like the basic spiritual practice. Three times a day, dawn, noon, dusk, or any other times. Just make sure you're doing 3,000 repetitions. You don't have to count it 3,000. You just make sure you're meditating for one hour each time. Then it will ultimately come up to 3,000. So notice he's been given a sadhana. This is not a beginner sadhana. If you're just starting, don't do this, okay? Don't. If you're just starting to meditate and you start to meditate three hours a day, please don't. Please don't. Please see me first and talk to me if you're just wanting to get started. This is an instruction for someone who's been meditating a while and has incrementally built up their practice to three hours a day. Do not think you will make genuine spiritual progress if you don't devote more than three hours a day to your practice every single day. Why? It's 
it would take that much anyway to learn an instrument, to learn a new language, right? If you wanted to learn a new language, you couldn't just like, I don't know, pick up the guitar every now and then. You would never learn it, at least not to the level of proficiency you would need to jam with others. If you really want to learn an instrument, you have to work at it. You have to like sit with it and really do it and, and do it regularly. So similarly, he's giving this man now that the guru is giving this man um, a schedule. He's saying, here is a rosary on which you can count. And in the beginning, say the prayer at least 3000 times a, a day. Now, this next instruction is very important. We'll say about it more next week. Do not add or take away from this number by yourself. Through this exercise, God will help you to achieve the ceaseless activity of the heart. Okay, be careful. If you suddenly increase the activity of your, your prayer, I mean, if you do more than you're told to do, reactions can come. So don't be overzealous either. Don't do less, don't do more. He's saying, do not add or take away from this number um, by yourself. So the guru tells you carefully what you should do, obey because there's a reason why the guru is prescribing that at that time. Even if you think you can do more. In my hubris, when I was younger, I would go to my guru and say, what, only this many hours? No, I want more. I can do more. He said, Abba, you are running a marathon, not a sprint. And he had to pull me in. And I would say, why should I sleep? I want to be like Swami Brahmananda. I will stay up all night and do japa. Now I'm seeing it's all an act of ego. Like all that tapasya, I think on one level, it's been... It, my drive was ego. I will do it. I will sit up all night and meditate. I will get to God. You know, and my guru very clearly forbade me. He said, you must get seven hours of sleep a night. I was so upset. I was like, but, but, but I'm an actual, I, am I not a real spiritual practitioner? What is sleep for me? The, the, the worldly sleep while the yogi is awake. And, you know, in my hubris, I would say things like that. And then I would get very ill. And then I wouldn't be able to do any job, like real job, you know? So it's important to pace yourself to not do too much. Be careful of too much meditation also. But that's usually not instruction for most of us beginners. We should be told to meditate more. <laughs> anyway, do not add or take away from the number by yourself. Through this exercise, God will help you to achieve the ceaseless activity of the heart. I received this instruction joyfully. Return to my place and begin faithfully and accurately as possible to carry out this directive of the elder. For two days, it was somewhat difficult. Then it became so easy and pleasant that when I was not saying the prayer, a need arose within me to say it. And I began to say it then with much greater ease than I had experienced in the beginning. I reported this to the elder and he suggested that I repeat the prayer 6,000 times a day. So he's doubled his practice. In my opinion, a bit drastic, but they know what they're doing, right? <laughs> he doubled his practice. Um, he said, be at peace and faithfully recite the assigned number of prayers, God will reward your efforts. For a whole week, I stayed alone in my hut and recited the Jesus prayer 6,000 times every day, neither worrying about anything nor paying attention to the distracting thoughts, no matter how severe they became. My main concern was to carry out the advice of my director as accurately as possible. And do you know what happened? I became so accustomed to the prayer that if for a short while I stopped reciting it, I felt as if I were missing something, as though I had lost something. When I would begin reciting the prayer again, I would immediately feel great joy and delight. If I happened to meet someone then, I did not feel like talking. My only desire was to be alone and to recite the prayer. I had become so accustomed to it in a week. I think sometimes we think this stuff takes longer than it does. Swami Vivekananda actually says you can be a perfected yogi in six months. He says that in Raja Yoga. He no doubt says if you work at it, he says it. Mark my word, you read it for yourself. He says in Raja Yoga that in six months, you can be a perfected yogi if you work sincerely. And Swami Brahmananda would say, come back to me after three years. If nothing has happened, slap me. 
He was so sure. And you know, Swami Brahmanandaji, Raja Maharaj, in his inimical, inimical way would say, the amount of stress and difficulty it takes to pass your final examination with much less you can realize God. Who, who speaks like this except those who have realized God and understand how simple it is? You know, isn't that beautiful? Okay. Um, as the elder had not seen me for 10 days, he came to visit me. So the guru comes also. Remember, he's gone, he's so enthralled now. He's enjoying the prayer so much that he's not even going out of his house to see his guru. So the guru came. He listened as I gave him an account of my progress and then said, you are now accustomed to the prayer. So continue with this good habit and strengthen it. Do not waste any time, but with the help of God, uh, recite the prayer 12,000 times a day. Rise earlier, retire later, stay alone, and every two weeks come to me for direction. I did as the elder suggested. And on the first day, I barely completed the assigned number by late evening. At first, I felt tired in reciting the prayer constantly. My tongue seemed numb and my jaw was tight. There was both a pleasant sensation and a slight pain in the roof of my mouth. My left thumb with which I counted the beads was sore. And there was an inflammation in my wrist extending to the elbow, which produced a pleasant sensation. Those who have done a, a lot of japa know exactly what this is. It's painful, but because you're in such an absorbed state, it's like a pleasant throbbing. Do you know, like after a deep meditation, when you stretch out your crossed legs, you know, it's like, oh, but mm, why do I like this? <laughs> right? <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> anyway, so all this seemed to attract and compel me to greater accomplishment. And I spent five days faithfully reciting 12,000 prayers a day, experiencing both joy and longing for prayer. So this is really advanced. So this is like 12 hours a day about, right? It's really advanced practice. Once early, I don't recommend it for most of us now. Once early in the morning, the prayer seemed to awaken me. I got up ready to read my morning prayers, but my tongue had difficulty in formulating the words. And I was overwhelmed with the desire to recite the Jesus prayer. Meaning he, rituals have fallen away from him. The Jesus, the Japa prayer, the Japa itself had replaced all other prayers. Sri Ramakrishna says, Everything falls off of you once you get this state of joy, this inner, uh, you know, okay, let's go on. Um, and when I started it, it became so easy and delightful that my tongue and lips seemed to do it by themselves. I was joyful the whole day and seemed, ob seemed oblivious to everything else. I seemed to be in another world. And with great ease, I recited 12,000 prayers by early evening. I would have liked to continue but I could not go against the directions of the elder. For some days, I continued in this manner, joyfully and lovingly calling on the name of Jesus. Right? Such Chaitanya Mahaprabhu vibes. It's Gauranga, right? Okay, but notice, he, he wanted to do more, but he didn't because he wanted to obey his guru. Then I went to see the elder and told him everything in detail. He listened to me and then said, Jai Makali, glory be to God that now you have both a longing for the prayer and that the recitation of it comes so easily. This is a natural result of discipline and frequent practice, which can be compared to a wheel of a machine that has been given a push and then the machine works by itself. Sri Ramakrishna says, there's no need to fan your face when the Southern Malaya breeze is blowing. Then the wheel needs only be, to be oiled and nudged for the machine to keep working. Do you see what excellent gifts the lover of mankind has endowed even the sensual nature of man? Your own experience testifies to the kind of feelings which can be experienced without extraordinary grace, even in impure and sinful souls. Ah, how indescribably wonderful it is when God deigns to purify a soul from passion and grants to it the gift of self-activating interior prayer. 
This condition is difficult to imagine, and the revelation of this secret prayer is a foretaste of heavenly bliss while the soul is still here on earth. Only the simple and loving hearts who are earnestly seeking God are found worthy of this. Now, you may recite the prayer as many times as you wish. Call on the name of Jesus all your waking moments without counting and humbly resign yourself to God's will, expecting help from him. I believe that he will direct your path and will not forsake you. Now, at this point, the inner mind itself becomes the guru. As Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Brahmananda stress, your purified intellect acts as the inner guru. Many people think they're ready to listen to their inner guru far before their inner guru awakens and actually instructs them. They have a kind of inflated notion of their inner voice. It's just the voice of impulse for most of us. But at this level, at this stage of purification, that inner voice will guide him. So he says, you know, he will direct your path and will not forsake you. Now notice the guru has relaxed all injunctions. He says, count as, do it as many times as you want. You don't even have to count now. Basically, the guru has set him free in some ways. He's kind of mastered it to some degree. After, and I'm now just getting to the end of this. This is the very end. I'm just going to read through to the end now. Um, but I want you to note as we you know, kind of get to the end of the chapter, just these are the fruits, the fruits of interior prayer. So from now till the end of the chapter, just like your, let your imagination be thrilled by this depiction of what it's like to have achieved this state. After receiving this direction, I spent the rest of the summer reciting the name of Jesus vocally, and I enjoyed great peace. During my sleep, I often dreamed that I was praying. And if I happened to meet people during that day, they all seemed as close to me as if they were my kinsmen, even though I did not know them. I have to say this. You want to see God in everybody, you have to take some time away from everybody. You know, we're too, we're too quick to want to go see God and everybody you want. You'll see the body, you'll see the mind, you'll call it God. Notice how in the beginning he was kind of introverted. He avoided everyone's company. He just didn't want to talk. He wanted, but now look what happened. See, do you see this is the fruits, the fruits of prayer. If I happened to meet people during the day, they all seemed as close to me as if they were my kinsmen, even though I did not know them. My thoughts had quieted down completely. My thoughts had quieted down completely. I thought only of the prayer to which my mind now began to listen and my heart produced certain warmth and gladness. The long liturgy of the hermits now seemed short and did not tire me as it did in the past. My solitary hut was to me like a glorious palace and I did not know how to thank God for sending me a great sinner, such a holy elder for director. However, I was not to enjoy the guidance of my beloved and wise father for long, for at the end of the summer, he passed away. With tears in my eyes, I thanked him for his paternal love and teaching and said goodbye. I asked for the rosary with which he always prayed in order to have a remembrance of him. Now I was left alone. The summer had finally passed and the vegetable garden was harvested. The farmer paid me two rubles, filled my knapsack with bread, and dismissed me. Again, I had no place to live, so I began to wander from place to place. But now my wandering was very different. Now, there was no urgency driving me. The calling on the name of Jesus comforted me on the road. All people seemed good to me, and I felt that everybody loved me. One day, I began thinking what I could do with the money which I had earned uh, guarding the vegetable garden. Then it occurred to me that with the elder gone, I could use a copy of the Philokalia so I could continue my study on interior prayer. I blessed myself and continued reciting the Jesus prayer. When I came to a provincial city, I began to acquire about the Philokalia in various stores. 
I did I did find the book in one store, but the price was three rubles and I had only two. I tried to make a bargain, but the salesman would not change the price. In the end, he said to me, go to that church over there and ask the sexton. He has an old copy and perhaps he will sell it to you for two rubles. So I succeeded in getting an old and battered copy and I was happy. I repaired it somehow. I sewed a cloth around the cover and placed the book in my knapsack. The proper use of money is in sadhana. If you want to spend your money, spend it on sadhana. Buy murtis, buy whatever, you know, like don't spend your money on anything short of spiritual life. Notice he earned two rubles. What do you do? He bought a spiritual book with it. It's good, right? He's not thinking, oh, what comforts? He doesn't want comforts. He wants direction. So he spent his money wisely. So now I walk and say the Jesus prayer without ceasing. And it is more precious and sweet to me than anything else in the world. Sometimes I walk 70 or more verses a day and I do not get tired. I am only conscious of praying. When the cold air chills me, I began saying the prayer with greater intensity and I warm up. When hunger begins to overcome me, I began saying the name of Jesus Christ more frequently and I forget that I wanted to eat. When I became sick, when I become sick and feel rheumatic pain in my back and legs, I pray greater attention, I pay greater attention to the prayer and I do not feel the pain. When someone offends me, I remember how sweet the Jesus prayer is and the offense and anger disappear and I forget everything. I walk in a semi-conscious state, bhava, without worries, interests, and temptations. My only desire and attraction is for solitude and ceaseless recitation of the Jesus prayer. This makes me happy. God knows what this is all about. Certainly, all this is on the sensual level, or as the elder said, it is natural and artificial result of habit. I am not yet ready to make the interior prayer of the heart my own because I am ignorant and unworthy. I wait for God's good time, and I trust in the prayers of my diseased spiritual father. Glory be to God that even though I have not attained the ceaseless self-activating prayer of the heart, I now clearly understand what the meaning of the words uh, what the meaning of the words of the apostle is, pray constantly. And the final and most important thing that I have to say to you is this. Go forward. Sri Ramakrishna would time and time again say, don't stop here and think this is it. There's more. There's always more to discover in spiritual life. Woe be to the fool who thinks they're awakened and done right? Woe be to he who has watched however many YouTube lectures or read however many books and now thinks he's a Brahmagyani and doesn't need practice. Woe be to him who has tasted but a drop of water and calls it the ocean. Woe be to him who has walked a narrow road and called it the king's highway. Woe be to him who walked into a hut and called it the palatial chambers of the mansion of the mirth that is spiritual life. You know, never act as if you've achieved everything. So notice, even after such an advanced achievement, this wonderful man is saying, but there's more to discover. And so begins the rest of the book. That was only chapter one. So how did I do? You think I can do audiobooks now? No, I'm kidding. Obviously, I can't. Obviously, I can't do audiobooks because obviously I can't get through a sentence without. <laughs> so here we go. This is the way of a pilgrim. This lecture brought to you by, no, this is the way of a pilgrim. Um, and we just read the first chapter of it. I invite you to read the rest of the book and maybe even the sequel. The pilgrim continues on his way or whatever. Now, th this book is about the spiritual journey. And there's, yeah, right. It felt like the end, but it's not. There's so much more. He's so much, so much left to discover <laughs> in that book. Now, another thing I want to leave you with is this Japa Yoga book a comprehensive treatise on mantra shastra. So this book is by Swami Shivananda Saraswati of the Divine Life Society. It's a very Ramakrishna inspired movement. And Swami Shivananda Saraswati himself is like he channels Sri Ramakrishna. You know, he refers to him often. In fact, the book is dedicated to him. And um, beautifully, he just 
puts it all on the table for you. What Japa Mantra, Japa Yoga is, this is a good book. Now in the appendix, you're going to find some really cool things. So in the appendix, there are things like, you know, the essence of Japa Yoga. There's a poem. Um, there's this thing called Sadhana Tattva or the seven the science of seven cultures for quick evolution of the human soul. I also really like this um, 20 hints on meditation that appears in page 158 of my copy. So this is the appendix of Swami Shivananda Saraswati's Japa Yoga. So I was going to read them to you. I don't think I will just to close off this lecture, but I just want you to know that those resources are there. So when it comes to Japa Yoga, of course, the gospel of Sri Ramakrishna over and over will extol the virtues of Japa. You can look at Japa Yoga for like a detailed instruction as to how to do Japa. Also, the cool thing is this book is full of mantras. Like, I mean, obviously the best thing is for, for you to do is to get like mantra diksha. Then there are all these mantras. Don't get scared. These are in Devanagri, which I really appreciate because then you'll know how to pronounce them. For those of you who read Devanagri, there's a whole bunch of Devanagri mantras in here, right? But then for those who don't read Devanagri, just like skip ahead. And then there's all these, I mean, look, they tell you it's like, if you want a Durga Gayatri, here's the Durga Gayatri. I don't know if you can see that, but like that. So they tell you all the different mantras. And then interestingly, there's a transliteration also. So after all the, the Sanskrit, there's all these transliterations. So, you know, this is a cool book. If you don't have a guru now and you want to start Japa Yoga, it's fine. Just pick up a mantra from Japa Yoga, whichever one appeals to you, whichever, you know, is ascribed to your favorite deity, and then just follow the instruction right? You'll find detailed instructions in the call to arms volume three in the discord. Now, I hope that this discussion together will inspire you to take up earnest and genuine spiritual practice. I hope you're inspired by how easy and straightforward it is and how all you need to do is show up three times a day, ideally for an hour each time, if not maybe 30 minutes each time, just do the japa, do the recitation. Plenty of instructions will be there for you in the how to meditate call to arms part of the discord. Now, I really hope you'll check in. I'm so happy to see Jess there and Beth there and, you know, Paulina is really like, she's putting us all to shame. Paulina does daily check-ins, which I really love. I do them in like three-day chunks. I'm like, no, I got to get on the Paulina. Tara is back. Tarama has come back to the check-ins. So the check-in is a really good space because you'll see other people practicing and you don't have to, but it's nice. It's nice to like, you know, log your practice. As you'll see at the back of Japa Yoga, it's good to keep a spiritual diary of your practice to see how it's increasing over time or like, etc. Now it's not linear. You will backslide. It's a spiral. So don't worry if you're not linearly progressing, but you should address that if it does come up. Now, uh, hopefully all the resources are there for you. Okay, that's the, the how to meditate thing. There's the check-in. There's the call to arm stuff. There's this discussion. Um, I, I hope by now, by the end of the discussion, we all feel ready, right? To like practice spirituality. So I hope that we were as clear as we could be by mother's grace. Um, let's just now close with some four or so minutes of japa meditation. So let's be kind of guided, right? So a little japa meditation. Okay. So come and take your seat. Now, importantly, sit up tall with the spine erect. However, you're sitting is fine. It doesn't have to be cross-legged or anything. You can be in a chair, but just see to it that the spine is floating freely, that you're sitting up tall and that you feel alert and poised. Then start to relax the base of the neck, soften the tongue into the bed of the mouth, relax your hands on your knees or palms, relax the inner groin muscles, relax the feet. And finally, if you feel comfortable doing so, you can close your eyes and softly tuck the chin, bowing the face ever so slightly as if to drop the mind down into the heart. 
start to become aware of your heart space in the very middle of your being. So this isn't the chest, nor is it the patch of skin between the shoulder blades. It's in between those two points. Think of it as in the center of the spine, if you want. This is the Anahata Chakra. It's along the Shushumna Nadi, at the very midline of your being. So direct your attention to that place. And then start to follow the breath as you inhale, as you exhale. Just watch the way air moves in and out of the nose. Become interested in the sensation of air, that cool, dry inhale at the tip of the nose. The warm, wet exhale flowing out of the nose, caressing the upper lip. Just allow that to relax you. After a few moments, you'll notice the breath becoming more drawn out, richer, fuller. This is very natural. As you relax the face and jaw, as you settle into your seat and into your practice, as you arrive here in this moment, the breath of its own accord becomes relaxed, deep, and rhythmic. So just continue with this rhythmic breathing for a few moments until you feel quite settled, quite relaxed. Taking deep rhythmic breaths and resting in the spaces between the breaths. Eventually, start to visualize there in the very center of your being a lotus flower or a rose or any other flower of your choice. It can be any color you want it to be. See that flower as clearly as you can in your mind's eye. Then imagine that seated atop the flower was your favorite form of divinity. It could be the Buddha meditating under the bow tree. It could be Jesus seated in meditation or standing with Abhaya Mudra, one palm held out in silent benediction. You could see him in his flowing robes, in his barefooted simplicity. You can see the kindness, love, and warmth issuing from his eyes. You could see Chaitanya with his arms upraised, lost in deep ecstasy as he chants the name of Hari. You could see Shankara seated, giving instruction. You could see Ramakrishna as you see him in that picture, seated in Sahaja Samadhi. You could see any of the deities that appeal to you, Lord Shiva by the bank of the Ganga or atop Mount Kailash. You could see Krishna covered with wildflowers, wearing yellow deep in the forest of Vrindavan. You could see Ma Kali amidst howling jackals and funeral pyres, standing provocatively, covered in ash, laughing hysterically. You can imagine anything you want to imagine. Or alternatively, you might just, instead of the lotus and the being, 
imagine an ocean of light or a vast infinite sky. Know that this is your innate divinity, the self of yourself. And now start reciting a mantra. You might have received one from your guru. You might know the particular mantra associated to the deity that you're visualizing. You might just do the Jesus prayer from our reading. Or you might just chant Om. Now as you inhale, mentally recite Om. As you exhale, mentally recite Om. Inhaling Om. Exhaling And just like that, keep inhaling and exhaling the inner recitation of the mantra. Feel its abiding presence, its sanctity, its sacredness, and continue directing your mind to the heart as if you were outside looking in. See that ocean of infinite splendor or that deity seated atop the lotus as the self of yourself, the indwelling essence of your being. And for just a moment, let's sit in silence and savor that. Oh, Mother, you are inseparable from thy name. Namer and named are one. Om, bless us so that we may repeat thy name constantly, uninterruptedly. May the mind flow like an unbroken stream of oil. May the mind flow like a ceaseless current of bliss within me towards thee, thou who art the indwelling essence of all. Oh, Mother. May my mind be drowned in the ocean of nectar that is thy name. Fill me to the brim with thy name. May thy name be the chant of my every breath. May, my, may thy name beat with my every heartbeat. May my entire body be saturated with thy name. May I be lost in the ecstasy of thy name's spell. May I drink freely from the wine of thy name's liquor. Oh, mother, bless me that I may repeat thy name unceasingly in all places at all times, with all fervor and intensity. Om, this is the prayer. Om, Shanti, 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 Hari Om, Tat Sat, 
ಶ್ರೀರಾಮಕೃಷ್ಣಾರ್ಪಣಮಸ್ತು thank you all thank you for enduring the two hour lecture i just had to say what i had to say okay and i'm sorry but thank you thank you for for bearing with me <laughs> okay so 